What's up? Hey. hey. Bill, how come you sound so low? I'm just tired. So low. <laughs> He's got the blues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, can <laughs> I, I can barely blues. hear you, dude. So bad. <laughs> we got that podcasting blues. My brothers and sisters all hated me because I was an, I only, was an child. only child. <laughs> got the blues so bad. Maybe I'll join a league in our tournament, put on a stupid looking shirt, and go bowling. Bowling. <laughs> oh, I love that song. Oh, it's a great song. Back to the bin. All right. Well, I think I'm going to bail. Uh, Does your last podcast appearance you bail? No, no, it's not my last my last podcast appearance. It's my last podcast appearance today. <sighs> I know I suck. You're not hanging out for the show? No, no. Uh, I'm sorry. We don't need it. Go on, get out of here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I feel like Pee Pee Wee Herman in the in the. In, <laughs> I'm not is, sorry. See, I'm, I'm not of, sorry. I'm thinking of what's her name, uh, uh, Lorraine Bracco in Goodfellas, when when she 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 flushes the uh, cocaine down the toilet. He's like, "Why did you do that? I'm sorry." <laughs> well, that was I was thinking of was it Cheech and Chong where he's, uh, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry." <laughs> I'm not Zaya. <laughs> See now, now that now that you're leaving, we can't do a big apocalypse now reunion. <laughs> oh, right. Why? Why? One person on this call hasn't even seen the movie. Scott. Scott, I think Scott hasn't seen it ever. Right? Right, Scott. What's that? Apocalypse Now. Nah. I saw it in the movies what? in its original release. What? I I have I have seen and I own a copy of the original version on DVD. I've never seen the uh, Redux version. I have the Redux version. I've never watched it though. If you get the chance, I have um, I still have a DVD account through Netflix because they, they're just of what's offered. And I did rent the documentary "Hearts of Darkness: A Filmmaker's mm. Apocalypse," which That's is awesome. The, it's so good. I, I really enjoyed it. I saw that when it was originally aired on PBS. Oh, cool. That's yeah. That that that's an awesome thing. And it's it's just there was they also remade the original story. With, uh, I think it's, what's his name, uh, John Malkovich, I think? Yeah, in the 90s at some point. I saw it in college because I had to... What, they redid the movie? No, Heart of Darkness. Oh, Heart They Darkness. did it based on the original source material. Based, yeah, they, they oh, did okay. it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because Apocalypse Now kind of goes a little far afield of the original material. <laughs> oh, okay. I think, <laughs> that, I, yeah. That's just a polite, word, a polite way of putting batshit crazy. <laughs> Or cat shit crazy if you heard cat poxalypse <laughs> on episode 500. See, that's how I found out Scott had never seen it because he's like, I don't know what that sh- stuff was you guys were doing. <laughs> what? I just thought it was just completely fortuitous that we both did them and we both picked completely different parts <laughs> of the film. Just like by complete coincidence. Oh, so what did he do? He, he mashed them together? He Is put that- mine right before theirs, I think. Because mine was a promo for In Country where I did a take on the Robert Duvall 
I love the smell of napalm in the morning uh-huh. scene. And then they did this whole story for uh, for Ben's, uh, I think, from what Alvin's point of view. Well, it was it was Comet's point of view because Comet had was taking pain meds, and then I went into this mm. whole. Oh, he's taking pain meds, 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 and then Paul played the role of Alvin. Okay, and I played the role of Comet. Well, my suggestion was that we fly in on helicopters and play Ride of the Valkyries, but no, <laughs> nobody wanted to let us do that. And we were followed up by Dick Dragon, Kung Fu. <laughs> f- <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I will see you guys later. Um, I'm going to try to get some sleep. Yeah, say, you get some sleep. Get some sleep. Feel better, man. All right. Uh, good luck. Have fun. I'll see you guys later. Later, dude. Later. So Bye. All right. Now that we got rid of him. <laughs> what a prick. <laughs> so you, you lazed out today. You decided, you know what? Screw it. This week, I'm not bringing a book, huh? That's it. You done. You just, this guy's just pissed me off. So I'm like, that's it. I'm done. I'm not bringing a book no more. No more? No more. If this wasn't your network, I'd kick your ass off the show. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, just, I mean, I would have, but <coughs> part of the problem was I just, I didn't have any prep time. I didn't even get a chance to read the books that you guys brought tonight. So I'm not sure what the hell I'm even here for other than, you know, I, comments from the peanut gallery. So yeah, we know it's not for good looks. <laughs> I can talk about the pretty pictures. That's about it. I have read this. Uh, Micronauts. I, I, yeah, I was just going to say, I assume you'll have plenty of conversation for the Micronauts book, oh, yeah. whether you've read it recently or not. No, it's been forever. Who the hell is this person? It's me requesting my contact information. I do not recognize this name. Sure, go ahead. I, I get this all the time. It's usually like porn spam. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, who is this? And you realize, oh, it's like a serious porn bot or something. Right. This name sounds vaguely familiar, but I'm not sure. Okay, this must be somebody from some... It's got to be somebody I know through comics, because his picture on Facebook is the Falcon, so... Connie Lingus is not a real name, Scott. (laughs) Damn it! I'm not going to... I'm going to just leave that one. I'm going to walk right away from it. Phil Lacio? Yeah, I think I know that guy. I think I knew him in high school. I haven't seen him in a long time. Anyway, so, so going to bring us in or what? One of the things I wanted to ask you about, Paul, because I, I, I fully realize that, that this is not everybody's cup of tea, that it's probably just me, but I'm wondering what the chances are that we, we can make a trip to uh, to Corona Park again. Is there you think there's any chance of that? I think there's a likelihood of that. Say what? I said I think there's a likelihood of that. Oh, okay. I think after, after last year, we had a good time there, and they've... You know they've renovated it some. Right. Yeah. As so I, I don't see why anybody would have a pavilion page it. right now. I was just looking at the renovation work that they've been doing, and yeah. I was listening to a couple of podcasts this week that were talking about, um, you know, just the history and the renovation work they've been doing and everything. There was a really interesting uh, episode I was listening to. They were talking to somebody that works at that little. Um, not the Queen's Museum, but that little museum that's actually attached to the New York Pavilion right there that we walked by, but we didn't go into it. Right. And the guy is just like obsessed hmm. with the history of that New York Pavilion. And he was talking about all the history and the work. He, he's like the head guy behind the people for the pavilion movement to save the pavilion. And he, it was really a fascinating list. And I was really into it and everything. But 
you know, since being there last year for, for eternal con and everything, I've just gotten really interested in it, in the whole thing and realized that, um, you know, just there's so much more about it I didn't even know above and beyond, you know, the when we walked around the grounds and I was kind of telling you guys different things that I knew about it. I mean, there's so much more even beyond that. But uh, I, I just like I'd like to go one more time, get some more pictures. But also, you know, last year we were kind of tight on time and I was tight on money, but I'd really like to go to the Queen's Museum, you know, because they have that whole um whatever the hell you call it, I can't think of it now, but, you know, the, the whole display in there, and they have a, a little section for, you know, like the history of the fair and all. I just think that'd be cool. I'd love to do that. Yeah, I don't see why it would be a problem. But I just, I didn't know if anybody else would really give a shit, you know what I mean? I didn't, I didn't want to just, you know, go and do it just for myself if everybody else was like, why the hell are we doing this again, you know? No, nah, I don't, I think everybody got a kick out of it last time. I was hoping so. I, I was hoping they weren't just humoring me about it, but they, you know, they generally did find it interesting. I, I figured they kind of would. Yeah, I mean, would, you know, because it kind of sort of dovetails with, you know, our, our geeky interests and that sort of thing. Or at least I was hoping so. Anyway, you know, um, I, I, basically what you did was you took something that I've gone, I've been around many, many times, mm-hmm. and never really paid attention to. Right. And and you well, pointed out some stuff and and you know made something that was always kind of bland to me interesting. I'll send you a link to the episode that I was listening to today because I think you'd get a kick out of it because the the guy that was interviewed, the the guy I was talking about, I can't think of what his name is, something Silva, I don't remember his first name, but the guy that was interviewed that works at uh, (laughs) at the at the whatever that thing is called. um, That was kind of his story. You know, he was a kid from Queens. He grew up there all his life. And every time that they would drive somewhere and they would see the pavilion, he'd always ask his folks, so you know, what's the story with that thing? And they'd always say the same thing. Oh, you know, it was, you know, from the World's Fair, but that's all they knew about it. So sometime, you know, over, over the course of his life, he just got interested in finding out more like, okay, that, that's not enough of an answer. What, what really is it? So he started to look into it and uh, and just, you know, it became an obsession of his to, you know, find out more about it and learn the history. And then, of course, to save it, you know, because it's uh, I guess there's a real possibility that if they can't save it, if they can't do something with it in the next few years, I guess there's a real possibility that it might be dismantled, which would be a shame. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that's about all that's left, you know, beyond the Unisphere, that's really all that's left of yeah. the 64. Because the the Queen's Museum is actually a relic from the '39 fair, which I didn't realize. I thought they were both from the from the '64, but that one actually dates back to the '39, and that building had actually served as the headquarters for the UN when the UN was first formed before they built what is you know what's now the UN building. Which I don't know if was there a reference to that when we actually went into that building because I can't remember. It seems like I might have read that in the. You know, when we were standing in the in the entranceway of that, but I, anyway, Not I read. That I remember, I, but that you know, my memory could be faulty. Yeah, I can't remember, but I, I, a book I was just reading on that was telling all about that, and I was like, "Damn, that's actually really cool." You know, it's just not one of those things you you hear all that much. So, but anyway, I just I thought it'd be cool to yeah. to go again. I'd sure. I'd like I said, I don't, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a problem at all. Cool. Scott, do you belong to the Facebook group? It's called NYC nineteen fifty to present. No, at all. It's a closed group, so you could ask them to join. Everyone, people basically just po- consistently post photos of New York City 
from New York 1950 to the present. And every once in a while, and you'd have to search around for it, people will post just kind of ephemeral stuff from the 60s. That was the very first thing that popped up when I typed in NYC. Yeah. First thing that came up. They'll post like newspaper clippings or or things like that. Um, So, I mean, you have to kind of dig around because there's just a ton of posts in the group. Right. But uh, every time, and, and since it's a closed group, I can't share it out. But uh, it's it's stuff. If if you got on there and you found it, you'd be pretty interested in some of the stuff they have, like you know, photos of programs and newspaper articles and stuff like that. Right. So well, since we were there for for Eternal Con last year, I've gotten a number of books. I actually got an original program from the fair. Oh, very cool! That I found on eBay for dirt cheap, and you know, some other some other things like that. So I mean, all it's done is just it just fed my. You know, I already had a strong interest in the whole thing because of the Disney connection, but then it just mm-hmm. fed it that much more. You know, just I, I was just fascinated. I thought it was awesome. My my interest has always been on the Robert Moses side. Yeah, and and I have Robert Caro's The Power Broker staring at me from a bookshelf, daring me to read it. The book is enormous, but I yeah, I've heard I it. I will eventually massive. read it. Yeah. Yeah, I just I was listening to uh, a show today um, that was talking. About, well, of course, you know it's one of those things you can't really you know it, it's hard to separate the man from the event, you know, because mm-hmm. he's basically the guy behind the whole thing. Yeah, fair, and particularly getting you know Disney to to come to it and all that sort of thing. So I mean, he's he's a major player in the whole story. And, uh, yeah, I'm <coughs> kind of interested in reading that book sometime just because I think he's an, a fascinating figure. And, I, you know, from what I've read about him and, and learned about him and everything, I think he gets painted in, in kind of a, a, a nastier, villainous light. And to me, he sounds like an awesome friggin' dude. You know, he sounded like, you know, he's a, he was a guy that got shit done, you know? Well, and, you know, I mean, I know you're not a sports fan, so this wouldn't have any impact on you. But uh, mm-hmm. he is widely considered the reason why the Dodgers and Giants left New York. Hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I've seen things about him that paint him in a very good light. I've seen a lot of things that make him out to be like the best comparison I can have contemporary to him would be like a J. Edgar Hoover. Like right. that sort of um, a lot of people paint him as somebody who took his power a little too far. And but he's an incredibly interesting. Oh, yeah. In the 20th yeah, century. absolutely. Absolutely. So. Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, I think that there's a lot of people historically that probably if you were if you were to meet them in real life, they were probably royal assholes, you know. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that they're any less fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the people I've always found highly fascinating is Hitler. And I mean, you know, you don't get much more scumbag than Hitler, you know. <laughs> but we're starting. My tenth graders are starting a uh, um, Ilya Wiesel's Night, and I was talking about propaganda today, and I showed. You're probably familiar with Education for Death. Oh, yeah. The, the yeah. Disney, I showed that in class today. They were like, what is this? And I was explaining like how good this is at satire and propaganda and, and how, what a great piece it is. Uh, we we had a ball with it today. So we'll yeah, probably not, watch. Not something uh, you're going to see on the Disney Channel, but yeah. No. It, yeah. It must be fun to warp the minds of young people. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things that, uh, oh, this is awesome. Tom Palmer just posted a poster style image of the wraparound cover of Marvel Super Special number four, which was the Beatles story. Oh, cool. Oh, that is. I'm okay. I'm saving this. Hang on. He sells prints of that stuff um, at his table. Um, I didn't buy any. I didn't buy any of it when I met him, but 
I've never seen him at a con. I, I would love to meet the guy. I'm a huge I, fan. It was, um, it was there was the only time I've ever seen him at one, and he was at the table next to Bob McLeod. So it was, uh, and he's got some great. Um, I didn't buy a print from him. I bought. I I I ended up buying a print off of uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. He's another name. one I'd like to meet. Oh, he, what what cons have you been to that those guys have been at? Him? They've been at Baltimore. I've only uh, really been to Baltimore. And the, uh, Jose Luis Garcia has been there every year I've been there. I've met him twice. Um, and uh, Palmer and McLeod. I've met McLeod twice, and then Palmer was there last year. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I got a Wonder Woman print for my wife from nice. Garcia Lopez and I had him sign it. So it, it's going to go on the wall next to the Perez sketch that I got her a couple of years ago. He's one that I would definitely like to meet. Um, Garcia Lopez and, and of course Palmer. I have met um, Bob McLeod and then he was a hell of a nice guy. Yeah. Such a nice guy. And no, and nobody was around him. Yeah. He, he was one of those stories. You know, I've, I've heard these stories before about, you know, these big name creators and then you go and there's like, nobody seems to know who the hell they are. Yeah. And they had McLeod. This was at I forget what dra- what a uh, MegaCon this was. It might have been the last one I went to. I can't remember, but uh, I went and they had him stuck in Artist Alley, but like in like the newbies, like the you know up and coming or you know oh, unknowns really? essentially. And I even asked him at one point. I said, Bob, "Why the hell are you over here?" I said, "Nobody even knows where you are." And he goes, yeah, I know. He goes, I don't know why they did this. He goes, I've been coming to this thing since I forget what year he said. And he goes, I don't know. They stuck me over here. And he was really pissed about it. You could tell. He mm. was trying to be nice, but you could tell he was really pissed about it. And I don't blame him. I mean, Bob McLeod's a fucking superstar as far as I'm concerned. And they got him stuck yeah. in there with, you know, Joe Blow that's doing, you know, Dirt Man and, you know, on his own dime type of thing and trying to make a name for himself and break into yeah. the biz. And I'm like, what the fuck? You know, why is why is this guy who's a legend in the business stuck over here with with all these hucksters that are you know you know it's it's the ones that are you know if you even yeah. stop to even glance at their stuff they're trying to you know get you to buy it. you know all that sort of shit and, and, no i know i i know because um that's where they that's where they put up wayne van sant was there last year and i i, I talked to him for a while he was i have not i have yet to meet somebody at a convention who's not incredibly nice which i've been very lucky in that regard had you know, I've had mixed results, but for the most part, everybody I've I've ever met at, at conventions, um, at least comic creator wise, mm-hmm. has always been really really awesome. Um, really, I mean, honestly, I think the only really ugly one I ever had was uh, was what's his name Box Lightner, which is funny because I was just telling somebody at work that story today. But I've had a couple comic creators that I thought could have been a little nicer. <laughs> Nobody uh-huh. that was outright like rude or ugly or anything like yeah. that. You know, just a couple of them that were a little bit. I don't know. I thought they were a little bit up their own ass. You know, Paul Paul Pope, who I met because I had him sign something, was clearly um, clearly knows he's a rock star at the, of the moment. And, is he uh, the one that did that Batman? What was it? Batman three thousand or something? I like think that? Is he the one that did so. That? Yeah, yeah, I had him. I had him sign something else. I can't remember what. But so. I think that's about uh, the only thing of his I really know, and yeah. uh, gotta gotta be honest, I wasn't I wasn't crazy about yeah. the the art style or what, but yeah, I have to decide whether or not I want to save up the money and and just bite the bullet and, and meet Neil Adams because he's been there like every year I've been there, and uh, you know he charges thirty forty bucks to right to sign stuff, and I'm like, well, you know, see, I, I met him 
three, it's got to be five years ago, I guess now, <coughs> at New York Comic Con. Yeah. The first year that they had the Thursday availability. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the years where I had a press pass. And that was the only, the only way you were getting, you could go <coughs> on Thursday back then was if you had the pass for the whole weekend. Was that okay. a Two True Freaks press pass? Yes, it was. That's awesome. But that's, they, they've since denied it. me the last two years for that. But that's besides the point. Uh, but that <laughs> year, you know, the Thursday was the best best day because they only opened at 4 o'clock. It was like from 4 to 8 or something like that. Mm-hmm. But the only people there were people with four-day passes, so it wasn't mobbed. Oh, that's nice. And I went over to Neil Adams' table, and, and he was selling prints for, I think it was 20 bucks, maybe 25 Mm-hmm. So I bought a print, like 11 by 16 Batman and Robin print. Yeah. And then he would autograph. You know, if you bought it, he'd autograph it. Okay. And then, you know, it wasn't so crowded. So I sat down. I was talking to him. It was, you know, it was kind of cool. You know, he gives you some of his theories on life, which is always interesting. I've heard he's great for a conversation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, he, and then somebody was walking by and, and I had him take a picture of us together. And, you know, for, for 25 bucks, it was well worth it. I, uh, um, Jimmy Palmiotti is one of the the nicest yeah. guys I've ever met, and and he I, I gave him two issues of the Nam, and he launched, and I used it for an episode. He launched into a whole story of like I'll tell you all about these issues and stuff, and just like out of nowhere, and I was like, that's really cool. He's a hell of a nice. Guy. He's he's an easy guy to talk to. What was <laughs> funny with him? Same convention, and this was when I had come on uh, Comics Monthly Monday and talked about this. Mm-hmm. I saw him, and he was like leaving the table he was at and walking wherever. And I just stopped him for a moment to introduce myself and say hello. And before I had a chance to say my name, he knew it from Facebook. Oh, that's wow. cool. Which impressed the hell out of me. <laughs> and then it turns out, you know, he he had, he still had an apartment in Brooklyn, which was about three blocks away from where the, the apartment that I lived in after I moved out of my parents' house. So we were oh, very cool. comparing a lot of notes on Brooklyn and then comic stores in Brooklyn and I got an, ended up getting into a conversation with Dan DiDio too because the two of them met in one of the comic stores that we all knew hmm. you know whatever 40 years ago yeah I ran into DiDio but he was with his family so I did not want to uh, bother him you know because it wasn't on the, at a table or anything but he yeah. seems pretty nice despite the fact that I don't agree with half the stuff he's done <laughs> well that's yeah. you know he, he and I got into a, a private message chat just going back and, forth <coughs> and and you know it was one of these ones where you know you send the message and 30 seconds later you get the response and you just keep going back and forth and we we were comparing notes on the comic stores and all of that and you know he was really cool about it and when I when I see somebody like that though like and I don't want to bother him sometimes all I'll do is just say just wanted to say hello I'm a big fan and just walk away yeah you know I won't okay. bother them Right. That that happened at uh, Eternal Con last year with uh, Jim Shooter. He was mm-hmm. he was in the middle of a conversation, and I just you know kind of poked my head in. Was that after we were shook there? His hand and left. Hmm? Was that after we were there? Was I think it was shooter? while we were there. Shooter was there when unless we were the, there. Shooter unless it was, was the there? year before, but I think it was last. Oh, year. Oh, okay, all right. I, I think it was last year. I, I don't. I do not remember Shooter being there, and I'd, I'd have been pissed to know that he was there, and I didn't. I didn't get to see him when he was there. He was asking for you. <laughs> Just saying. I got to I got to meet him when I was a kid. He was at a, an Ithacon one time, and uh, I just thought he was really cool. But I mean, I knew who he was from Marvel stuff of the period. But now, you know, I mean, and I was probably I don't know. I'm gonna guess I was probably somewhere between sixteen and I mean, uh, fifteen and eighteen, I guess, mm-hmm. when I met him because this was at an early uh, an early Ithacon. 
So I knew him as, you know, he was the head of Marvel, but I didn't realize his whole history with, you know, he had written some of, you know, all these, you know, issues of Superboy and, you know, some of my favorite Superboy stuff and all that. And I, you know, now knowing that I'd, I'd like to meet him again and talk more about that shit than, than Marvel, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I'd, if, if he was there last year, I totally didn't know about that. I know I didn't see him. I could have sworn it was last year, but I, like I said, I may be wrong. You're probably wrong. I'm rarely wrong. <laughs> anyway, hello everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins I'm Paul Spataro and if you have not figured it out by now I am joined by my ever-present uh, conscience, Mr. Scott Gardner <laughs> I don't know about ever-present Jimmy Cricket to I'm, Pinocchio <laughs> I, I'm trying to be here more often, I don't know about ever-present, but I'm trying, I'm trying Well, you're always telling me that I'm wrong, so that's why I'm giving you the conscience thing. This is very true well, you are, but you're, you're frequently wrong. What can I say? Rarely wrong. And playing the role of Dr. Bill today is our buddy Tom Panaris. So I'm Shemp today. <laughs> or Curly Joe Dorita. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm very good. You had, you had that little spurt of uh, appearances on the show, and then it's like you disappeared from, uh, from consciousness for a while. But that it's good was... to have you back. Thanks. Yeah, I was I was looking according to my Skype uh, record or whatever it was. It was around this time last year, actually, and that corresponds to when we put the house on the market and just got sucked into all the hatch shit. So, um, so no, it's good to be back. I, 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 this is this is always a fun show to do. So I hear. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> what do, what have you been doing in the comics world lately? What are you What are you reading? Me? Yeah. Um, I uh, I was actually just looking at my pull list the other day, and I'm reading a lot of independent stuff, and not for any reason, just the fact that most of what DC is putting out is just not attracting me. And I, I had read Secret Wars, and liked parts of it, didn't like other parts of it. I might, um, once I get the next issue of previews, might make a few selections. Uh, I do want to pick up, start picking up some more of the Star Wars books. I've heard really good things about the Darth Vader series and the Poe Dameron series looks halfway decent. So I'm going to do that, but uh, mostly just kind of diving into back issue bins and pulling out anything I can find completely at random. Uh, I've been, I'm doing a, a, a series toward the end of the year uh, where I'm looking at a bunch of comics that I actually owned and bought in the fall of 86 up until about the fall of 87 uh, which was the first kind of year where I was collecting comics. It's mostly G.I. Joe Transformers, that sort of stuff. So tracking that stuff down has been kind of fun. Um, mm. And uh, and then, yeah, just kind of filling in holes on my uh, on my very, very long list that's now in my phone. It's no longer on a piece of paper that, uh, <laughs> you know, of, of different runs of stuff and, and stuff like that. So a lot of back issue diving, the occasional um, really uh, – Something that there's only a few comic series that I look forward to and like really, really want to read uh, right when they come out. Letter 44 from Oni is one of them. I'm trying to think of any of the other ones. Um, Paper Girls over at Image because Cliff Chang does the art on that and I really like him. And then I've been reading Batgirl and I don't know if that's because I like it or if I'm just keep if I'm just trying to make Stella happy. <laughs> um, and uh, Brett and I have a great time with Scooby Doo team up when it comes out. So 
Is, is it true that uh, I, I saw an image today on Facebook, but I didn't know if it was just like fan art or it's a it's a really you know it's a true thing. But it was a picture of the classic Marvel family, you know, Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel Junior and Uncle Dud- uh, Uncle Dudley and everybody yeah. with the Scooby Doo gang. Is that is that happening? Is that a real thing? It might be. I have to. Um, um, Scooby Doo team up. I think is bi monthly, um, and it ha- it has been them teaming up with uh like they teamed up with dead man and the specter at one point or, or is the phantom stranger and the specter i think and um the latest issue was aquaman so i wouldn't be surprised if they did that and because the first issue was batman and robin but it right. was but it was classic like scooby-doo cartoon batman and robin right and then later on down the line they did a team up with teen titans go and i found it clever and brett kind of got the reference where at one point in the comic um one of the characters turns to the other. I think it's like Daphne and Velma say, Robin acts a lot differently around the Teen Titans than he does with Batman. <laughs> and it was a great throwaway line. And they and, and I, one of them responds to, well, we all kind of act different when we're around our parents, right? And right. it was a clever line. But it's a really fun book. Um, and the back issues are, I guess they might be pretty easy to come by in a 50 cent bin, except for the one with Harley Quinn, which apparently was going for an insane amount of money because the book doesn't have a huge print run <laughs> still. Yeah. I, but no, I, I can never understand the short, short term run turnaround on prices where something all of a sudden, I don't know. like that. I don't know. But, um, I would, if I, if I see it solicited, I'll let you know, cause, uh, it would be, it would be worth reading. It is a really, really well-written fun book to read. I so. saw one not long ago where they teamed up with, with Superman. And I, I wish I mm-hmm. had that up now. Cause that looked really neat. Yeah. It, it's what you want out of an all ages book because it's not too little kitty. Um, I mean, I used to like the, the Balthazar and Franco books are really fun to read, but um, you know, there's there's a they're intended for a really young audience, and Brett's not old enough to read the current um, DC and Marvel mainstream. He's not. Books. He's not in his late thirties or early. No. 40s. <laughs> so. So. Um, he gets like Web of Spider-Man, he, but he gets a lot of Kaboom stuff like Adventure Time and uh, and some of the stuff over there. And they're doing a great job with, with that. It's a lot of it's licensed stuff, but they're doing a great job with that. I, uh, you know, I haven't been reading too much new stuff and I'm finding even when I read new Marvel stuff that I like, everybody talks with Robert Downey Jr.'s voice now. Mm. And I don't like that. Yeah. Yeah, at least, you know, say what you want about DC. They don't seem to have fallen into that trap, at least. No, that's a good point. I've read some of Scott Snyder's Batman, and it's been all right. I mean, I, I'm not over the moon with it, but I did enjoy Year Zero, which I, I just went out and got digitally. So so here and there, I pick some stuff up if it looks interesting, but I haven't been able to commit to anything. So we'll see. We'll see what Rebirth brings. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not overly optimistic on that. Neither am I. Shockingly. <laughs> and so so there's really very, very little right now coming out that I have any significant interest in. No. So most most of my time is spent spent going through the back issues. Yeah. I've been buying a lot of secret or old secret origins comics lately, so that's been a lot of fun. 
Which one? Secret Origins? Yeah, Secret Origins. And I'm trying to finish a run of Suicide Squad from the 80s, and that's becoming tougher and tougher. Yeah. I need one. I, I you know, let me send me a list sometime because I see them all the time. I need right. one issue. I need the very last issue, 66, and I never see it anywhere. That the one is. of that series I got out of the 50 cent bins, but I yeah. never see that one. The only. Uh, most of them I've seen 50 cent bins and stuff. Um, I think I've just exhausted my LCS's supply, and I have to. I just have to go somewhere else. Right. Um, the last issue and then some of the key issues with Barbara Gordon go for a little bit of money as well, especially the one, the one or two that have some tie to the Joker. Hmm. Yeah. In Suicide Squad? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't even There are a few. Yeah, she joins the squad sometime around um, – it's actually early on, but like the, the issues that, that go big are, are in like the, the 40s or so that she's actually an active member of the Suicide Squad at one point or another. Oh, okay. That's that's past the point where I've read at this point. So Yeah. Yeah. Oh. That's where uh, that's that's how Ostrander basically established her as Oracle in that book. And oh, then okay. they eventually brought her over. Yeah. That's that they build her character through. Suicide Squad and Checkmate and, and those books. Um, and it was, it's very, very well done. Hmm. Good to know. Yeah, I had yeah. no idea on that. All right. So, having exhausted that topic, <laughs> I guess we'll move on and cover some comics. Oh, sure. All right, Scott, why don't you go first? Nope. You suck, man. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I brought a comic last time and, uh, it didn't go over so well, so... I'm sorry, but as, you know, a 53-year-old man, I can't find myself getting too enamored with Barbie. <laughs> and and it, quite frankly, it scares me when I think of you as a... Uh, was it 47-year-old man? Yes. Yeah. Uh, think, think about that. It wasn't it wasn't so much the Barbie as the the subject material that mm-hmm. that was being covered in in the Barbie. I, you know what? I'm why do I have to keep explaining myself? Because I this? think you should be registering with the local neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> oh my okay. god! What's that? This is, oh my god! <laughs> oh. I appreciate that. <laughs> Now you know what. By the time by the time people hear this, see Tom doesn't have the benefit of of really having context on on the I Barbie th- issue that you covered. I think I know what issue it is because you posted a picture of it to one of the groups when you got it. So from, right. Yeah. So I, I don't know what's going on in the issue, but I but uh, I, I think I can picture the cover in my mind. Um, <laughs> I've always been amazed that 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 series ran for as long as it did. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> Yeah, I'm still amazed were... that that Apollo Smile ran as long as it did. <laughs> it was only two issues, wasn't I it? I know. <laughs> I'm still amazed it ran that long. But anyway, today we're going to go a little bit more classic. Unless, actually, Tom, I, I, I apologize. I usually like to give the guest the, uh, the, the 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 floor. If you'd like to go first, you're welcome to. No, you can go first. Let's start off with the with the better book because, uh, well, let's start off with the more classic book because people are more apt to listen to that. They're they're gonna they're gonna want to shut this podcast off when we get to mine. I don't know about that. Will, <laughs> no, it's, you, it's a good book. Will. It's just that it's a nineties it's a nineties book, and people like will be like, oh, but no, this let's 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 cover it. Let's cover yours first. All right. Well, I I brought Micronauts number twelve, 
which is cover dated December of 1979, had a cover price of 40 cents. And the cover by Michael Golden has a Croyer front and center with his glowing blade in hand, ready for action. Behind him are some sparsely detailed other members of his world, including his love and his traitorous brother. Story is credited to Bill Mantlo and Michael Golden as storytellers. Al Milgram did double duty as inker and editor. Colors are by Carl Gifford, letters by Diana Albers, and Jim Shooter is the editor-in-chief. We open on Homeworld, where there is a celebration underway, and the people are filled with joy because Baron Causa is dead after a thousand-year tyrannical rule. The story is titled, To the Victors Belong a World. The Micronauts are basking in the glow of their victory as the people of Homeworld sing their praises. They retell the story of their victory as Commander Arcturus Rand delivered victory against Karza while empowered by the Enigma Force. In addition to their celebration, they also mourn the apparent death of their ally Bug, who sacrificed himself in order to allow an attack on Karza. Amid this, Acroyer and his girl Cilia must leave to return to their homeworld of Spartak. At this point, we cut to Cape Canaveral, home of H-E-L-L, the Human Engineering Life Laboratories the location of a nexus to the microverse, where a battle took place and they have an Acroya warrior in a sealed tube. From there, we cut to Daytona Beach, where we see a father and son touched by the Micronauts' struggle, and they're content and relaxed after all of their trials. From there, the final scene on Earth is of two silhouetted figures, a cigar-smoking man with the rank of Colonel, and his cigar-smoking, derby-wearing companion, who are both giving out a mission. Hmm, I wonder who they were. Very mysterious. And so we travel to Spartak, the living world that is home to the Acroyas, a harsh world of jagged mountains and cliffs. Acroyas' brother, Prince Shithead, uh, I mean Shitane, is brought before his brother and charged with being a traitor to the people. He shows no remorse at all. This causes King Acroya to retell the history of his people. Now at this point, I've got to assume that all of the people are well aware of all of this and are sitting there rolling his eyes as he drones on and on. But anyway, it seems that they were once a peaceful race of farmers and engineers whose sun went nova. They fled in a massive space arc and came upon the living planet of Spartak who welcomes them. Since Spartak is a cold stone world, it forces them to become a combination of Klingon warriors with the suppressed emotions of Vulcans. So Prince Shaitan had a Croyer kidnapped and sold into Karz's arena as a slave. Rather than face sentencing for his crime, he challenges Akroya to a blood feud, and that challenge is accepted. Both men are sent down to the planet's surface. As Akroya is troubled by questions of what to do, Shaitan goes immediately on the offensive, hitting Akroya with a boulder. Akroya uses a force hammer to shatter the rocks where Shaitan stands. The two continue to combat and argue philosophy at the same time, with brutal shots being landed. Shaitan grabs... Shaitan gains the upper hand, only to have Akroya regain the blade that he had dropped and run through his brother, killing him. From there, we cut to Kalaklak, hive world of the Insectivorids, where something falls from the sky and we're told, next issue, Bug. So they, they didn't keep the death of Bug very long, considering the next yeah. Yeah, it's just, They're already telling us he's coming back next issue. But this, this kind of presented Marvel with the... Difficult, or I guess Bill Mantlo and Michael Golden, with the difficult task of following up the initial story arc of the Micronauts, which, while derivative of Star Wars, was really entertaining. 
And now they had to come up with some new storylines. And this was kind of the first issue of that, focusing on a Croyer and his home world and his culture. And uh, they really did a good job with it. Eventually, Micronauts kind of fell into a repetitive pattern of having Baron Kaza be the only truly viable villain they had. Right. Mm-hmm. And that they had to keep reviving him eventually. But before that became, you know, before the story started becoming so repetitive, they really did a good job of fleshing out these characters. Uh, Bug in particular, who is not featured in this one, obviously, I think was kind of the breakout character. And he's one that Marvel still owns. Yeah. Okay. Because he, he wasn't part of the original licensing agreement. They added him to the mix. They added him. I think they may have added Octorus Ran as well, but I'm not sure about yeah, that. The, the three that I know for a fact that they continue to use to this day is Bug, Arcturus Ran, and... Um, is it Marionette? Uh, Marionette, yeah, that's it. I was going to say Minuet. Yeah, Marionette. Yeah, um, the, the Acroyer and... Uh, what's it? Biotron and yeah. Microtron. Those were all parts of the toy line. Yeah, and Karza. And Baron Karza, yeah. Which, yeah. he's probably the biggest shame, because he's, he's such a good uh, Darth Vader analyst. Oh, he's Darth Vader, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I always saw the, the Micronauts comic series as very much like... Uh, I, I Basically, I, I would sum it up that it, it suffered from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Syndrome, which was, yeah, there were other bad guys that came and, and went, but at the end of the day, everybody thinks of the turtles fighting Shredder. You know, yeah. and without Shredder, who are the turtles? And that's kind of the problem with the Micronauts is that without Karza, who are the Micronauts? Okay. But that said, I mean, you got to you know give the series props. It lasted a long time, well beyond this arc right here that we're talking about. And even, I mean, it even survived the loss of Michael Golden on the arc because this is the last Golden issue too. Although he continued to do covers, I think. Well, then eventually we got to Pat Broderick, though. Right, that's true too. This is one of those series I have always meant to go back and, you know, continue on reading because I have the original 12 and then I have spotty issues beyond that. But having, um, you know, within the past couple of years, I, I finally completed my ROM collection and did a complete run through a ROM. Now I'm really curious to go back and, and read all of Micronauts because I strongly suspect that the reason it lasted as long as it did was actually Bill Mantlo because B- Mantlo did with this series much what he did with Rom, which was he built a, a a universe, a world, you know, out of this toy line, and you know that's a pretty impressive feat. And there's still elements of it that Marvel continues to mine today for stories. So. Now I'm curious to go back and, and read the whole thing and check it out. But then probably what will happen is the same thing that happened to me with Rom. Now I'm dying for them to, you know, do that in, in movie form, you know, incorporate it into like the MCU, which I don't know. I, I'd like to mm-hmm. think it'll happen with the Rom stuff, but I don't know. Realistically, probably won't ever happen just because there's the whole rights issue and all that. But, you know, still, get, you know, damn good stuff. So I'm not sure if the series went beyond it, but I have... From issues one to fifty-seven. Yeah, it was. Uh, there were fifty-nine. So you're missing two issues. I'm missing two issues of the initial series. Then they did the new voyages. I only have one issue of that. Yeah, that one I picked up off the stands. New the new voyages, and I remember it not being very good. It just somehow it just didn't capture the same magic. All I would over think there. those I could probably find in twenty-five cent bins. Oh yeah, I see. I actually see issues of Micronauts, the the original run, all the time in uh, in cheap bins. If you should see issues fifty-eight and fifty-nine, uh... yeah, I'll snag them for you. 
Absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny. I actually got um, my Micronauts number one. I got out of a – now, granted, it was in Canada, but I got it out of a 50-cent bin in Canada when I was a kid. And that was at a time when that book had been a hot – at one time, Micronauts number one was like a super hot commodity. Hmm. You know, that was uh, that was akin to like a like a Teen Titans number one or maybe even like a, a an, like an X-Men 94 or something. I mean, wow. that, was a, that was a huge book at one point. And then – I'm not sure where the tables turn, but at some point it just it just seemed to kind of fall off the radar. I don't know what I, I don't know what the catalyst was to set it up or to take it down, but yeah, I do remember that. That was a that was a really hot book for a time. Yeah, well, it's it's kind of fallen out of the public consciousness for whatever reason. Yeah, and I, and it's disappointing because it it really was a solid run, and I, I remember reading it up in you know into the fifties. And you know, eventually they kind of lost their way, and like I said, they they kind of had to go with you know, let's let's revive Carza again. But uh, it was still it was still a fun read. Yeah, did, uh, this I will I will admit to have never read an issue because um, this is seventy nine, so I was two and a half at the time, and <laughs> so Micronauts and and to a lesser extent Rom were just slightly before I started collecting toys that were not Star Wars. Um, so my big toy tie-in comics of the 80s were G.I. Joe and the Transformers, which is probably where Marvel perfected because, you know, like I see a lot of, I see a lot of what Larry Hama would do with G.I. Joe in just this one issue where like, clearly these are, you know, toys that are available, but they're really building a mythology around this. And it, for, for being my first issue of the series, it does read like a really good jumping on point. Like where I'm kind of curious as to where this is going to go and what came before, um, and it's not just Michael Golden's artwork, which is absolutely gorgeous. Right. Uh, that, that that draws me in, but the story. But you're right, Mantlo. I mean, I'm familiar with Mantlo as a writer, and 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 this is uh, this is some great stuff, and he really is taking the time to care for um, the characters and build something. Whereas you know later on down the line, Marvel would have the Star line of comics where they would put they would put out i think uh the thundercats was one and that was just disposable really i mean it was like you know you, you read the thundercats issue and then you kind of forgot you had it whereas right. something like gi joe you were going back month to month to month and i can see where that's the same care that mantlo's taking here with with this property which is you know which is kind of rare for a licensed property and it's the same thing he did with with rom rom yeah right yeah and and I I mean anybody who isn't familiar with this who ha, who has the availability to read them I don't know if it's on uh, Marvel Unlimited it probably isn't because probably of the not, licensing yeah. issues yeah uh, but if but I mean if you could find this in the cheap bins uh, I I would strongly recommend the the first arc it's a the first arc is the first eleven issues I have to look for it and uh, it, it's I, I've described it in the past that it was the first one that I recall reading where I thought the story was cinematic in the way it was presented. And a mm. lot of that has to do with the fact that, as I said, I think it was somewhat derivative of Star Wars. Yeah. And But it was presented in a way where, where like, you could see it so easily adapted into a uh, either a live action or a, you know, a, a more mature cartoon. I, I could see this being a cartoon on the level of what we would see in the eighties with Voltron, not even, even better quality than Voltron, like Robotech or something like that, where it was right, this yeah. clear, I think Robotech's a good comparison, which the American version of that was this 
very meant to be epic story that had a very long arc to it and and there was a there was a considerable size to it as opposed to the one and done villain uh of the week and the whole the whole way they played with this concept of the enigma force mm-hmm. it, it was it was it, you know it, it was again derivative of star wars but it wasn't a copy it was you know trying to pave some new ground with a similar type story if that makes any sense Oh, absolutely! No, it does. It does, and and uh, you know, it, it, to me, I, I wanted to revisit it. That's why I picked this issue, but I also didn't want to go into that first story arc because I felt like that's the one that's probably been covered the most. So I figured go right after it and grab this that's one. A good point. Uh, from from the story point of view, I, I you know a couple of things like when when they first start fighting and uh, Shaitan throws a rock at him, that makes me think of the Batman with Killer Croc. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, it does get a little bit heavy exposition-wise, but yeah. it's forgivable because I'm not sure how Mantler was going to create this rich history for you know this race of of beings without yeah. somehow coming up with an excuse for retelling the story. It's it's very much the yeah, this it's like page uh, looking at my page numbers like four fifteen. Uh, 15 or about where he's just kind of sitting down and giving all that backstory. It, it's a big info dump. Um, kind of reminds me of some of Burns early issues of Superman where he would toward the back of some of the issues at one point or other, just have these big long conversations that did feel kind of like dumping a lot of information on just to wrap everything up. But here it worked for me at least because I had never read this before. So um, I felt like I was, being eased into it and like, you know, being, uh, orient, orientated. I don't even think orientated is a word like, you know, oriented. it was like, yeah, oriented. Thank you. Um, and, and then, then you get into a, what's a really classic sort of fight, comic book fight of the let's yell philosophy. You're right. Let's yell philosophy at each other while we beat the crap out of each other, which is only works in comic book fights. Yeah. <laughs> But but you could as you're reading it, you could almost hear dun 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 dun. Yes, exactly. Well, let me ask you. I mean, what what do you think of a Croyer? Because I, I you know I make no bones about it. A Croyer was always my favorite Micronaut. He was just damn cool. Uh, I, you know, I'm not sure. I think Bug was my favorite. Really? But right. I thought a Croyer was cool because again, he was he was a combination of Klingon and Vulcan. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, you know, that's how do you how do you get much cooler than that? Was this the first issue that showed his face? I can't remember because I remember thinking that was a bit of a letdown, though. I, I wish they had I wish they had either waited longer to show his face or never showed his face because it, it was a little bit, bit of a letdown because he was, you know, he had the whole Boba Fett thing working for him. You know what I mean? He He was cool because he was mysterious. You know, he was he was this. You know, very, very Spartan style warrior. You know, he was a man of few words. He was just, you know, he was a warrior. And that lent a certain mystique to him. You know, he had his his nobility and all that sort of thing. But he was very much a just kind of a mysterious character. And then, you know, when he finally popped the helmet off, it, it, it kind of took some of that away from him, I thought. Plus, you know, plus, I don't know, I always thought he looked a little bit goofy. You know, a, when you see like the red skull. Yeah, yeah. You know the you know the fact that he doesn't really have a nose; he nose, just has yeah. a cavity, and yeah. Well, he's yeah. A, you know another race of people, though. I mean, oh yeah, they had yeah. to do something to try and 
make make them different than humans. Oh, sure, I get that. It's just you know, I almost wish that they they had made them truly more like, say, like the Mandalorians, where you know you don't really you know you don't really see them without their their armor and their helmets and that sort of thing. I think that would lend to an an extra mystique or you know maintain the mystique with him because that that a lot of it that was a lot of the appeal of the character for me was that you know he was what you saw he was the armor you know so you didn't really know the man underneath i don't know well i guess you know but to go on with the story you had to give you know you had to give him some sort of motivation and the fact that they wanted to make him the king of his world right you know it it makes it hard to not give him some back backstory yeah that's true you know you you could have made him a you know a (laughs) rankless warrior and you know just one of the masses right but i think they wanted him to have uh you know nobility not only of of the you know in his behavior but also of his stature right so you know it it kind of forces them to give him a backstory and i kind of like the you know the mutinous brother angle you know i mean it's not something new and original that we haven't seen before right but but uh, you know having sold him into slavery and and then you know Having to you know show no remorse afterwards and all, I, I I thought it was a you know pretty Shakespearean type story, right? It is. No, it, does, <laughs> it, it does come off as two knights fighting in that in that battle um, in a big way, and, and right the the Star Wars uh, comparison is apt there. But you're right; it doesn't feel it doesn't feel ripped off though, right? You know, he's he's giving it enough of his own and tying it into you know, obviously the, the property it's licensed from, but, but, you know, he's, he's, he's doing exactly what he needs to do with it. And it's, it's a really well-composed fight too. Yeah. And I, I don't think we've given enough praise to Michael Golden yet. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, you, you, you made reference to the fact that the artwork is beautiful. And I, oh yeah, yeah. But there's something about his artwork that is pretty unique in its own way. You know, it's not, Typically, what I you know the style of artwork that I point to and say, oh, this is my favorite artwork, he, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, he well, he's he's detailed and he does facial expressions well, and I've found that at least from what I've read that he adapts well to the genre that he's drawing because I've because yeah. you know I, I obviously I cover the nom and his it, his his work on the first. Um, like about 12 or 13 issues of the nom and then a few covers here and there is much different in style than than what you see here but this would not work on that book and then i've read some of his his stuff um from a few years prior to this which was in batman family which is also gorgeous and it has it's similar but it has a different feel to it and i think that's why his artwork is so uh fits just about every book he does so well because it's almost like he pays attention to the subject matter he's drawing as opposed to like a Jim Lee who pretty much seems to draw the same book every time no matter right. what the book is you know and I think that I think Golden needs credit I think that th- I think one of the reasons maybe he doesn't get as much credit as he gets is that he isn't as prolific in terms of his um I don't think he like he doesn't have as many credits or as much steady work on like one title as a number of greats like like a george perez or somebody does um and i don't i honestly don't know what that is i don't know if he has deadline issues or you know or or if it's something like that but he never really ever lasts very long in a book 
I could be I could be wrong about this. I, I don't want to mischaracterize him or mm-hmm. misquote him, but you know, I, I actually had the pleasure of meeting him. A uh, hell of a nice guy. Oh yeah, yeah. I met I met he's a really, really nice guy. And you know, very generous with his time and he'll mm-hmm. answer questions and all. And I'm pretty sure um, you know, by his own admission that that basically the reason that he has, relatively speaking, you know, again, compared to guys like, say, Byrne or Perez, mm-hmm. a relatively small body of work is just because of, you know, the nature of the way that he illustrates he he's slow, you know, and yeah. that's by his own admission. So he's not one of these guys to just, you know, churn stuff out. He mm-hmm. would rather produce a quality product and not get as much done as opposed to, you know, being one of the workhorses that can just bang something out, but then he's not, you know, he's not proud of it or not satisfied with it. Yeah. So, you know, relatively speaking, yeah, he really doesn't have a huge body of work. I mean, he's got, you know, scattered issues of things like, you know, you mentioned Batman family and and things Mm -hmm. like that. And then he's got basically his big claims to fame are, are Micronauts, uh, Nam and, um, you know, as far as runs, that's pretty much it. You know, I mean, he did yeah. uh, some latter issues of Batman Family, and then he did scattered um, other things for uh, for Marvel and DC, but nothing of any length, you know, as far as like a solid run. I mean, the solid runs are pretty much the first 12 Micronauts and the first um, 13 Noms, with the exception of 12. At least, according, I'm looking at Mike's Amazing he World did, here. He but, did, um, yeah, he, did, he didn't do 12, and he did the framing portion of seven and Wayne Van Sant did most of the art on seven. Yeah. He's got an an interesting way of framing his pictures. If you look Mm -hmm. through the book, almost every panel seems to have some of the action cut off on it. Yeah. And and it it does two things. It, It kind of causes you to use your imagination to see the rest of the picture, but it also makes you feel like there's a greater world going on in every picture. Right and and I, it's very unconventional as far as I can tell, and but it it definitely works for his style, which I think a lot of artists would not be able to pull that off. No, and, and a panel structure that is very straightforward and really takes advantage of a multi-panel page. I think there's one splash page through the entire issue. Yeah, yeah. Second page is the only splash page. And even that, even with the splash page, it still looks like this thing's going on beyond the framework of the picture. Yeah, yeah. So um, he he really it it's crammed for a lot of stuff, but it never feels um, too busy because you know sometimes illustrators will put a lot of details into something, and it's just there's too much there, and and you can't you can't know where to focus. Golden like really knows where to place his action and stuff too. Yeah, I, I can't say enough good things about this. Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm I'm like I'm amazed just looking at it how many people have their heads cut off in shots. Yeah, and and it would normally be something where I'd be like you know that's ridiculous it's terrible but it really works the way he does it. Yeah, or like um you know there's a space scene and the ships are I mean just from a design perspective you're like you really shouldn't have the ships flying out of the frame like that you know you know like you would want them a little bit over so they don't look like they're flying off the page but at the same time it completely works. Yeah. It's it's it it defies logic. It really mm-hmm. does because yeah, no. yeah. it shouldn't work. Yeah. If if somebody you know told you okay this is the way I want you to draw the page you'd you'd say no that's crazy. Yeah. So no a great a great choice. Yeah. He was I'm um, just thinking about other stuff. He did a lot of covers um, throughout the 80s, especially on 
G.I. Joe before Mike Zeck did a ton of them. Yeah. And uh, US One and some other titles. And at one point, he was supposed to have a Man Bat miniseries for DC and I want to say like the early 90s, but I think it fell through. Well, so. was, was that spinning out of Batman Family or did that become the feature he did in Batman Family? Because that was Man Bat, wasn't it? That yeah, I don't, I'm fit. not sure. That's something I'd have to go look up. I was just going through the, the history of the series beyond this point. Because I know the very next issue, the the bug issue that's advertised, you know, as being next issue at the end of this one, I just I remember the art was terrible. So I was looking that up. I couldn't remember who it was, and I wanted to say that it was um, um, Ditko, and I was wrong. Ditko did the annual. He did, which yes. I think is uh-huh. in publishing order, is the next book. But the next issue, number thirteen, is actually um, Howard Chaikin. Ooh. And it's not good, Chaikin. I mean, I typically uh-huh. really like Howard Chaikin, but yeah. that is not a good book. Huh. You know, I'm not a fan. We, we've does had that debate in the past. Does it say who the anchor is? Uh, Al Milgram stayed on the book huh, okay. for a time. Yeah, but, I don't know. So I was kind of flipping through the history here, and then come along number 19 is when um, Broderick came onto the book, Pat Broderick, mm-hmm. and he stayed for a while. And then uh, something I totally didn't know is issue 50 – uh, it's our old pal Val Mayerick is back on that. And I'm going to have to look and see if I own that book still. Because I know I used to. If, if I don't still have it, I'm going to have to track that down. I think I'm actually... number 50? Yeah. I'm going to have to look at that myself. I know I have it. So I'm going to have to, gonna have to uh, bump this up on my list of priorities to uh, to track down uh, and fill in my Micronauts run and, and collect all these and read them. Because I've read through this point, of course, because I do have the original 12 just because you know, I've always been in love with... Uh, with Golden's art and everything. So I do have the original 12, and then I have just spotty issues beyond that. But no, I'm looking here. It doesn't look like I do have a 50. I know I had it at one time, but I don't have it anymore. I only have, beyond issue uh, 12, I only have, it looks like, about 12 issues beyond that point. And, you know, the issue, the series ran for 59 issues. So, yeah, I'm going to have to fill that in and read it because, I mean, I had an absolute friggin' blast reading Rom. That I mean, I knew I would enjoy it, but I had no idea I would get sucked in as much as I did. And uh, and that's good shit because I mean, he really he really built a a fascinating world out of really nothing. I mean, they gave him a toy and that was it, you know. And at least here there was a few more characters beyond just you know a, a toy and a basic concept. Okay, he's a space knight. That was kind of what they told him with with Rom, and he created everything. With this, there was a little bit more to work with. You know, he had a few more characters, but still at the end of the day, it was essentially, here's a team, here's the bad guy, go, you know? Mm-hmm. And he did kind of the same thing. I mean, he kind of created, you know, the whole world of you know, the microverse and all of that. So, um, yeah, I was, you know, I was digging the initial setup and everything. And, you know, you were right, Tom, because, uh, you know, you said this issue kind of reads like <coughs> a jumping in point. It, it really is because it's kind of the wrap up of the old story and it's yeah. the setup for the next story arc. Um, that goes forward from here, essentially, okay, life after Karza kind of thing. Yeah, it makes me want to go see what my store has and go back and forward and see what I can what I can find on, on the Jeep because um, it, it just it's really really interesting, um, right? You know, so. well, I'm, I mean, I'm also interested too, just knowing that you know, from time to time, um, either characters or elements or both from the series do continue to crop up. Because when I was reading through, God, what the hell was the event? I can't remember. There was some event. Violation? 
No, it was past Annihilation. Infinity? Uh, might have been Infinity. Might have been Infinity. Because there was something you you and I were just talking about on a recent show where I said some event, and I was totally wrong. It was actually Infinity I was talking about you know, when we were talking some Marvel Cosmic stuff. But anyway, it, whatever event it was, um, one of the crossovers was a series. It was a four-issue series that had something to do with Scar, Son of Hulk. And in that series, um, the surviving Micronaut characters were in that. So it was Bug, hmm. Arcturus Ron, and um, I forget what they call Marionette now. They, they call her something else. And, uh, and they were in that series. And... That their appearance and their story was the only reason I suffered through it because I could give a rat's ass at (laughs) Scar. I think he's kind of a stupid character, but their part of it was actually interesting because it kind of caught you up all at once on what have they been doing all these years. And they've had to tweak things. They can no longer use certain elements of the original Micronaut series, but you know, at the end of the day, you still know it's the same characters and, and is. And, you know, in, in their own clever, sly, workaround way, they still reference things that they're not exactly allowed to, you know, mention by name from the original series. So, you know, it, it was neat. It was just neat to catch up with those characters again. And for a time, Bug was actually um, part of the Guardians. Because mm-hmm. I think, if memory serves, the first incarnation of the Guardians, um, you know, the modern, what we think of as the Martin, uh, modern Guardians of the Galaxy, like, you know, was in the film and everything. Bug was a part of them, um, mm. spinning out of Annihilation. And then I, I can't remember what happened to him. I think he just kind of, you know, he just kind of disappeared at one point. They just wrote him out or something. But I'm not, I would, I'm not sure they could adapt him into the movie. Yeah, I'm not sure how that would work. He'd probably have to be an animated character, I would figure. You know, a CGI, I mean. I mean, they have, they have a, you know, a talking raccoon walking around. So I guess yeah. They could manage to fit him in, right? And you know, just a matter of make you know what, what they would do with the character model to make him look interesting. He mm-hmm. could be an interesting character, though, because in, in a certain funny kind of way, he he's he reminds me of a character kind of similar to like say Deadpool or Ambush Bug or something like that. You know, he could he could be that kind of wiseacre, you know, smart alecky, almost a Bugs Bunny kind of a. Uh, kind of a character, you know, on the team. So I don't know. I mean, they, you know, if they did him, if they played him the right way, he, he might potentially work. I remember really liking him as part of that incarnation of guardians in the, in the comics. I really liked that. I just, I wish I, wish I could remember what happened to him. I want to say that he just kind of, they just kind of wrote him out. You know, I don't think he like died or anything, or, or there was any big dramatic like story arc or whatever. I think he just kind of, just kind of buggered off. You know what I mean? No pun intended. <laughs> be yeah. That. All right. We rate this? Yeah, sure. Say again. So we gonna rate this, or do you have anything more you want to cover on it? No, that that was pretty much it. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Start with the cover. It is a little bit of a poster image, but it also kind of tells us the story. You know, it's it's not one where you're picking it up and not getting a clue of what you're gonna see inside. You kind of have it all laid out there for you right on the cover, and it's Michael Golden, and it's catchy the only thing i think i might have done different is i'm not sure the yellow background works i might have might have chosen a different color for that or or i think i may have gone even a little darker on it just a little bit more shading but as far as the rendering i think it's really solid i like the fact that he's got detail and everybody else in the background is you know just a little bit less detailed uh i would say 
solid B plus, almost an A. Uh, the interior art, I think, is beautiful. I, I think this is, you know, I've always liked Michael Golden, and I think this is him at the top of his game. I think this is about as good as you get. So I'm going to give it an A for the interior art. The story is a little bit talky. You know, it, there's this, you know, a lot of words. You almost think Roy Thomas wrote it. But, <laughs> But it does, you know, it, it, it kind of creates the story. It creates a character background. It's interesting. It flows right along. Uh, I'm going to say an A minus on the story, just because he probably could have done it just a slightly less exposition y. Uh, but otherwise, it's really, really good. So I'm going to give the story overall an A minus, or the book overall an A minus. Uh, Go ahead, Tom. Okay. Um, that's pretty much where i am uh with the cover I, I agree with you on the yellow i do like the fact that that um you know he's up front and center and everybody else is kind of uh in the background and and you know colored differently so that he is prominent i would have positioned the sword differently uh <laughs> freud would have a field day with this uh but Golden Star's really good. I would give it about a B plus or maybe even an A minus. Uh, the interior art is spectacular um, and is an A for all the reasons we've already said. And I agree with you. Even even though I have not ever read an issue of this and it served as an excellent jumping on point, it was very text heavy in places. And there were places where it felt like a, a really big info dump. So I'd say an A minus, which I'd say basically, yeah, overall the issue is about an A minus. Cool. Uh, I'm going to go a straight up A on the cover. Um, uh, the only reason it's not an A plus for me is uh, what Paul said about the color scheme in the background. Yeah, I'm not crazy about that with it all being, you know, kind of monotone. You know, all the all the guys are a variant of orange and then the overall background is just a, a flat yellow. Um, it's just a color scheme I'm not crazy about. But damn, does a Croyer look awesome on this cover? It just looks awesome. And I... I like the cover because I, I think it's iconic, but also I like one of the, the things I, I loved best about uh, Golden's time on this book was that it felt like the toys, you know, the, the characters look like the toys without looking like it was just a book about toys, you know, like Toy Story or something. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. It, it was obvious he was using the toys as a model and as a as an inspiration and as a reference so it was very reminiscent of the toys, but without looking like it was just a bunch of posed action figures fighting each other in, in, in every issue, if you know what I mean. And I really liked that because that's got to be a hell of a tough thing to pull off, you know, to take a toy and and create something like this out of it without it looking, you know, with it looking just like the toy, but just not like a bunch of toys. I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, but I, I no, think it makes total sense. And, and yeah, it's an aspect of it I hadn't really thought about, and I think you you make your point is very well taken. Yeah, and and to me, the the one that always worked the best was a Croyer because I just I always thought he was just a damn cool looking action figure. A Croyer was just a cool figure, and Golden just did him better than anybody ever did. I, I just love. Uh, his version of a Croyer just looks awesome. And this cover image is one of the best he ever did, I think. Um, the interior art, I got to be honest, I, you know, of course I love it because it's Michael Golden, but I'm going to put the blame on the th- elements I don't like. I, I'm going to have to put it on Al Milgram, who I'm, you know, I'm very hot and cold on Al Milgram. When he works, he works. And when he doesn't, he really does not. 
And there are elements of this um, where things look wonky. And I don't think that it's golden, you know, because I'm very familiar with Mike Golden style. I'm a big fan. But there's there's just certain elements where things look a little funky, a little doughy. And they just don't look like quintessential, perfected golden to me. So I'm going to put that blame on Milgram. I think it's Milgram's inks in those instances. So the art, the interior art's a bit of a step down for me. Um, plus, uh, some of the coloring uh, decisions are a little bit strange, too, as far as like lighting and things like that. So overall, I mean, I'm going to say the art is... Um, I don't know. I don't want to be overly harsh because I really do love it. I'm flipping through it as I'm looking at it here. I'm going to say the art is, uh, I'll go an A minus. Um, cause overall it really does work. There's, there's really just a few panels and a couple of character models that I think are just a little bit off in this one. But again, I don't, I don't find any fault with golden or his layouts or anything. I really do think it comes down to the inking and some of the coloring decisions. So I'll say a minus, and then the uh, the story, I got to be honest, um, I didn't have time to reread the story uh, before sitting down for this. But I mean, of course, I have read it before. I'm, I'm fairly well versed on this era of the Micronauts and everything. And, you know, a- accepting the fact that Bill Mantlo loves words, you know, he's none. I've never read a Bill Mantlo book that was a quick, easy read. I mean, the guy was he was a writer, you know, and he really liked to, to pour the, the words on the page, much like uh, Roy Thomas that we mentioned before. So given that, you know, if you can accept that kind of writing style, then uh, then I'd say the writings, you know, it's right up there. It's uh, probably an A, but because of, you know, the, the meatiness of the read and there are some things that could really be toned down and everything probably falls closer to like a B plus or something like that. So overall, uh, would you guys say a minus? I think a minus yeah. is, uh, is dead on uh, for this. I, I think it's a just it's a hell of a good read. It's a solid issue. All right, so that's it for Micronauts number 12. And now we'll, everybody can turn off your po- your iPods. <laughs> According oh, to Tom, at least. I don't know what you would, though. And now it's time for the segment known as It Was the 90s. <laughs> no, actually, this is, an, this is a 90s comic, and I'm going to talk about that in my review, but um, in my comments on it. But um, it's actually, in my opinion, actually a pretty good 90s comic. Uh, it's... Uh, it is an independent comic. Uh, I have today Bloodshot number six. Uh, this was published by Valiant Comics. It was released on April 20th, 1993, with a July 1993 cover date. Uh, this, of course, is according to Mike's Amazing World. Uh, the price on this one is $2.25 US, $2.85 in Canada. Uh, the cover is by Don Perlin and John Dixon. It shows bloodshot in midair plummeting toward the ground below. He's wearing what looks like civilian clothes, although we know it's bloodshot because his eyes are red, his skin is white, and his shirt has opened up to show the big red dot on his chest. And the height at which he's falling and the, the, this, the fact that you see just kind of a, what looks like an airplane view of the ground suggests that he is falling out of an airplane, which he is. And we'll get to that. The title of the story is Death at 10,000 Feet. Our creative team is Kevin Van Hook, writer, Don Perlin, penciler, John Dixon, inker, Jane Mode, colorist, uh, editor Mark Moretti. Your editor-in-chief of Valiant Comics at this point in time is Bob Layton. 
We open up on International Flight 237 over Sydney, Australia, where Terry Long is taking a break from his marriage to Donna Troy in order to hit on a stewardess. It's not Terry Long, of course, no. It's some guy named Marco, but he is hitting on a stewardess. She's falling for it because after another woman tells him that he needs to get back to his seat because the, you know, they're gliding in or whatever, the fasten seatbelt sign's on, the stewardess gives him her room number. Marco then asks a guy if his seat next to him is taken. The guy screams, no, get away from me. And Marco responds by touching him and setting him on fire. Marco then proceeds to set the entire cabin on fire. And the woman from the conversation earlier, who is not not the stewardess he was hitting on, but the one who told him to sit down, grabs him and takes him to the exit hatch where they jump out of the plane. And she flies them to safety, criticizing him for being a womanizer. He's holding onto a briefcase that the guy that he had fried initially had been protecting, and he tells the woman whose name is Lee that A, chasing tail helps him get the edge off, and B, four more components and cinder and glider, and glider is spelled with a Y, by the way, can retire. I think it's safe to assume that since he sets people on fire and she can, well, fly through the air, that he is cinder and she is glider. We then cut to Heathrow Airport in London where Bloodshot arrives and meets a friend named Malcolm who, as he Did puts that make it, him Cinderfella? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know if there are any mice helping him out, though. <laughs> Cinderella, Cinderella. Um, we then cut to Heathrow Airport uh, where Bloodshot arrives. He meets a friend named Malcolm who, as he puts it, is a sleazy tabloid photographer whose main pastime is drinking. Malcolm is staying at a place that I guess that Bloodshot owns in London's East End, and he has gone ahead and done some decorating, by which he means taping nudie pictures all over the kitchen, kind of like that really weird pervy guy your friend was rooming with during your freshman year of college used to do. In Nice, France, a woman named Alicia Guerrero arrives at an office to see a Mr. Montblanc. The two have a conversation where an Alicia delivers a briefcase to him containing a set of components, and I'd like to point out that I'm not sure what these are components of. They're just components. Um, Montblanc comments that this is only the second set of components to be delivered safely as someone has been finding the couriers, attacking them, and then blowing up the planes. I'm pretty sure if you take all of the components and put them together, you build a big MacGuffin. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Montblanc then points out that Alicia is armed, and apparently that's a no-no. She protests, saying that considering how many agents have been lost, she needs to arm herself and decides that she's had enough of this crap, and she quits. Montblanc says that she should reconsider. He pays her for his service. He says that he'll see that she receives just compensation as severance, although she quit. So I don't think he owes her severance if she quits, but I don't know how employment law works when severance works in the spy industry. So Uh, It's a moot point anyway, because later on at the dock near a ship bound for Crete, someone sneaks up behind Alicia and knocks her out before loading her into the back of a car. This man's name is Colin King, and later on he checks in with Montblanc, who says that she'll realize that no one quits the weaponer. No one. Back in London, a Mr. Alcott sits with his leggy redhead daughter named Jillian in his office, and they discuss how they will be sending a new operative on an important mission. That new operative happens to be Bloodshot, who introduces himself as Michael Lazarus. Alcott tells Bloodshot that normally he wouldn't send new agents on some missions, but this involves agents of the Weaponer, whom Bloodshot has encountered before. Alcott shows Bloodshot photos of the Weaponer's couriers who have been killed, and they notice a common element. This is this guy Marco, who's in every photo. 
Alcott says that his sources believe that the plane crashes are a cover-up for something else, and we obviously know that having seen the scene earlier in the, episode, in the issue. But he's not sure what, and that's what he wants Bloodshot to find out. Two days later, Bloodshot's boarding a plane at Gatwick Airport, tailing a weapon or courier, as well as Cinder and Glider. The Concord thereon takes off, Marco hits on the stewardess as per usual, and then tries to do the same thing that he always does, which is try to take the courier's seat. The weapon or courier responds by knocking Marco out by poking him with what looks like a pen, but has to be some sort of super spy needle device, and then says, Oh, geez, Bill, I told you to take it easy on the booze for crying out loud. You're a diabetic. Now, realizing <laughs> that their cover is completely blown because Marco doesn't have the diabetes, Lee screams idiot and makes her way toward the exit hatch. Bloodshot follows after her, and she opens the door and glides out safely. He tries to close the door, but instead he's sucked out of, sucked out of the plane, and we close with him falling to his certain death screaming, no! And then we have a next issue. Yeah, <laughs> then we have an issue issue box that says Ninjack. Ninjack, Ninjack, Ninjack. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I, I, um, I will confess to having never read the series. I, um, I was fortunate enough to, to come, obtain an enormous number of free comics earlier in the school year, and uh, <laughs> it, like, uh, I was. Long story short, I was giving a um, professional development session at a thing our district does every year about co using comics in the classroom. And one of the elementary school librarians came up to me and says that a friend of hers gave her just a ton of comic books, but none of them are really appropriate for little kids. And and she's like, do you want them? And I'm like, well, yeah, they're free comics, of course. So um, most of them were like New 52 DCs and recent Marvels. And it was like two or three long boxes worth of books. And I think just like because it's like required, there were a ton of 90s comics, mostly Image Valiant, some Ultraverse, and uh, this was in there. And I literally picked it out at random to do this. Um, and my history with Valiant is very, very tiny. I remember Wizard hyping them a lot in the 90s. And uh, I remember them being known for the quality of their writing um, more than the quality of their art. Uh, I was more into image at the time being that I was, this is what 93. So I would have been almost 16 when this came out. Um, and, uh, and then my, my only exposure back then to Valiant were a couple of issues of, I think Exo Mana war that I had bought and death mate. Uh, and, uh, but when I was reading this, um, the cover, the cover drew me in because it did look like, Hey, there's something actually going on in this issue. You know, the guy in peril, it does take place in the issue. However, it is the last page of the issue on the cover, which kind of spoils it. But um, I've seen enough episodes of the old show Alias with Jennifer Garner to know the old trick of showing the cliffhanger or person in danger part and then putting up that title card that says 24 hours earlier that that's how I treated the, the cover for this, <laughs> um, which, which works out. Um, <laughs> some of these things are a little bit a little bit nuts. Um, Cinder and Glider are kind of lame names for a couple of what appear to be villains of some sort. Cinder's wearing a red suit. <laughs> Just this, I, the description, a red suit with a bolo tie, and he has, like, I wrote down the phrase soft rock mullet, 
because he's got a beard and he's got this like it, it it's it's like a Kenny Loggins Michael McDonald type of thing. I can't even I can't even begin to describe it. Um it's a kind of a cool power though to like you know be able to kind of just basically be, you know, the I have the power to set crap on fire with my hands, the pirate. I have that power with a lighter. <laughs> and um there is a there is a slight um, coloring error in the very beginning of the issue because the guy I had to go back and look at this. If the guy who he sets on fire on page one is with this weaponer group, he should be wearing a white suit because they established later on that all of the weaponers couriers wear white suits, which makes no sense. If you're trying to courier sensitive material, you want to be as probably inconspicuous as possible, but (laughs) But okay, for the sake of the story, it, it, I, I guess it works. Not that they wouldn't have made him anyway. You know, like, it, even if you had the person undercover, they probably would have had the intel to know this is the guy you're looking for. So I can give that a pass. Um, Bloodshot looks like something out of an early 90s action movie. Um, nowadays, he'd probably be played by The Rock. But, um, but he's very much this sort of big, bulking guy who's got... Um, you know, who looks like an action hero. Uh, the only, and, and, and his friend collects a lot of porn, which actually he, he, he says that those are pictures he took because he was, that was the only work he could get as a photographer. Um, the, the funny thing is that, and I'm, I'm kind of taking pot shots of the issue, but I actually like really enjoyed it. It, it's the first part of what seems to be an ongoing storyline. Um, in the same box that I got this, I found the next issue. I haven't read it yet. But um, it, it seems to be at least setting some things up. Like I do want to know who is this weaponer guy, um, or this, or this is it an organization? Who are these two? Who are they working? Who are these two? Like this Cinder and Glider? Who are they working for? What is the MacGuffin? The the components of the MacGuffin device, you know, and uh, you know, and of course the cliffhanger at the end. How is Bloodshot going to get out of this? I honestly don't even care about Ninjak in the next issue, um, but. Uh, but I, I think it's it's a pretty solid book. And um, what's what's interesting is I was looking at a Mike's Amazing World because I was just kind of curious because I was flipping through the the ads in the book and the ads. There's a lot of Valiant House ads, and um, you know you have hardcore and you have um, a couple of other things. But in one point there is um, Extinction has a new name. Turok Dinosaur Hunter number one. Right. Coming in April, featuring a hybrid chromium and foil cover, providing full metal coverage to all edges. And um, I was part of the, I think a couple of us were part of the Quarter Bin podcast 50th episode where we did this one. You and I were both on that one. Yeah. And I actually had. Did you? Yeah. And I had had Bart Sears sign my copy and I sent it to Professor Allen. So you you guys can answer a question for me then, because see, I was looking, I saw that ad too. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I have this book. Okay, and that's, you know, that's Logan's I, college education right there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but you know, it, it's one of those things that this book is, has become. You know, it, it's often spoken in kind of the same breath with when people make fun of, you know, um, Rob Liefeld and, you know, yeah. all the 90s stuff that you, you hear so much about. But I'm looking at this ad and the, the thing that jumped out to me was it says David Michelinie. Now, I have 
you know, infinite respect for my uh, Michelini. He's written mm-hmm. some of my absolute favorite stuff. So, I, you know, how is this book? Because I've never read it. I mean, is it is is it what everybody makes it out to be, or is it is it decent stuff? I, I think, honestly, I think you should listen to the episode that we did with Professor Allen because I thought it was pretty good. But uh, mm-hmm. to to boil it down to a nutshell, I think this issue is much maligned unfairly. I think okay. it's really not a bad issue at all. all right. It's just that it was a uh, no pun intended a harbinger of things to come. Uh, that that it, it just you know it, it's emblematic of of the '90s and and mm-hmm. the chromium covers and all of that crap that went on and it was and the hype. It was overordered, and that's where, uh, like, to the point where Bailey, Michael Bailey, has this story he tells about, you know, how he's heard how people were throwing out boxes. I've seen that, yeah, yeah, that with and, my own eyes. And, yeah. and I think that's where it gets its reputation. But actually, Turok number one, it wasn't, yeah, it, it wasn't as its reputation preceded it, but it's not as bad as it um, as it's made out. Frankly, I didn't think it was bad at all. I think if no, it no. had been a, if if it had been just a book that came out without any hype. I think it was mm-hmm. a good book. Yeah, it, it's not Young Blood. Um, I mean, I've long been curious about strength. it because I I have this issue and then I have um, issues three and seven only because they're part of my you know comics of Walt Disney World mm-hmm. series. They're actually displayed um, in the dinosaur section at Disney's Animal Kingdom. So you know I, I've had these for a while and and never read them just been curious about them but i love that cover on uh, mm-hmm. on issue 1 you know it's just it's just a great looking cover but like i say just seeing this happen <coughs> and Michelini's name just leapt right out at me i'm like okay this this can't be what everybody says it is if it's written by Michelini cuz off the top of my head i can't think of a Michelini issue i ever read that i didn't like so no, it, it, paul's right if it wasn't so overhyped and didn't have the chromium cover and wasn't overordered it wouldn't it would just be considered a very solid book in an era that is known for you know a lot of a lot of hype um excess yeah yeah cuz honestly like when i think of stupid ass 90s gimmick comics i think of the first issue of blood strike which had that feel the blood cover and was it was liefeld i think did the cover but like two of his like my friend and i used to call them liefeld's cronies um the people in his studio who basically aped his style in in the early image days did the art so i don't know like Danny Meeky or somebody like that. And it was an all I had it at one point. It was an awful, awful book. And that's what I think of when I think of like bad nineties. Turok is not, is not necessarily one of them, but I will point out that this bloodshot issue came out one week before Turok dinosaur hunter number one. And I clicked through to see what was out on the stands. And we are at peak nineties in April of 93, because just looking down, you've got adventures of Superman number 500, and the beginning of Reign of the Superman hit, hit, hitting this month. Um, oh, Scott Barbie number thirty, um, <laughs> uh, and Barbie Fashion number thirty as well. By the way, uh, uh, that's I'm, that's I'm, the one he needs to complete his collection. Yeah, um, we're, we're a couple of issues. We're at Batman four ninety five, so we're two issues away from Bane breaking his back. Um, uh, Cage has run too. Yeah, Cage has its his thing out. Um, let's see. Um, I knew there were some other ones here. June twenty ninety nine still going strong. There's an event. I think there's an Avengers issue. Avengers three sixty three has like a a, a embossed uh, foil hol- holograph cover or whatever. 
um, which I have no idea what goes on in that, but it's it's <laughs> it's gimmicky. Mark Wade's in the middle of the return of Barry Allen, so you can't right. fault that. Um, Green Lantern's a few issues is issue forty two, so Coast City's just about to blow up in a few issues. Oh, the Homage Studios swimsuit special number one comes out this month. <laughs> I, Father, forgive me. I have sent. I owned that off the stands in nineteen ninety three. No, we're was, we're looking at. Okay, yeah, you're looking yeah, at uh, uh, on sale, right? On sale, April on sale in April ninety three. Um, yeah. Infinity Crusade with also a foil cover. Um, just. And, and I know a Titan, New Titans is about to hit num- issue number one hundred, which is just infamous in terms of its of its lack of quality. Hey, Captain America was a dinosaur hunter that month too. He's punching a uh, yeah. what the hell is that thing? A Protoceratops or whatever it is on the cover. Man, that's terrible art. Who the hell is that? I don't know. Richard Levins and Danny Bolena. Usually uh, guys I like, but yeah, that's a terrible cover. Uncanny X-Men had just, it was a 301, so it just had that, another foil cover. Maximum Carnage was going on or was just starting this month. Um, yeah, the X-Men were still in the middle of the X-Men Unlimited. So you have a lot of these. I actually had that issue of X-Men Man of War. Um, Ooh, Star Trek Next Generation was just starting Worst of Both Worlds, which was a damn good story. Yeah. Oh, there's some there's some real gems in this whole uh it, 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 it is it's not all crap but like this right. is just very much like this was me in the middle of what of my 90s collecting where i'm seeing things that i was buying where i'm like you know clearly i bought that because i had seen something in wizard or or right. or, or 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 because you know like you've like all of those reign of the superman covers i had and, and which i enjoyed reign of the superman but you know you've got the die cut s shield cover and which you know which was a which was a definite sales gimmick and you know, and and so efforts to get new people on here, and um, so yeah, it's it's we are we are at peak nineties at this point, and yet, you know, it it wasn't as good as the Micronauts issue we just did, but I thought this was a solid enough issue that I'm kind of since I have the other issue, the issue after it, I'm kind of curious as to what happens. I don't think I'll go seeking the rest of the uh, unless I can find it on the really cheap, the rest of the storyline. Um, my biggest my biggest complaint is is the um, my biggest complaint, Valiant, has always been the coloring. Yeah. Valiant's coloring has always looked, and it's just the way they do their coloring, has always looked to me like washed out. Washed out, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's like a watercolor or something that they're doing. And there, was, the, there was something going on in the 90s with that, because that wasn't just Valiant, though. I, yeah. I, I'd seen a lot of that uh, like pastel look. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, but and, and overall, the art's. The art is solid. They don't employ the splash page a lot, which is what Image was basically known for at this point. Um, you know, um, and but at the same time, um, sometimes Don Perlin d- does not do facial expressions very well. The scene where um, Alicia Guerrero quits, she doesn't seem to register anything. Um, when he says, here's your last payment, she's just kind of like looking at him with a very weirdly drawn face. Yeah. And then, um, when, when she gets buzzed by whatever thing that knocks her out where that guy gets him, she's either being knocked out or having an orgasm. I can't exactly (laughs) figure it out. Uh, so it's the art, the art 
is not great. The story, however, is pretty solid. It's it's a halfway decent first chapter. It, it sets up things that, you know, make you curious about about some stuff and uh, and at least uh, provides some decent tension and and a fairly good cliffhanger uh, at the end. Um, I think I may have said this when we when we were on the Quota Ben podcast, but <coughs> I don't have a lot of uh, a lot of experience with Valiant books. In fact, I have very little. Yeah, but but when I look at the house ads and everything, when I look at the books, now you got to keep in mind, you know, you're talking Don Perlin, so he doesn't have Mm -hmm. the talent to totally pull it off. Uh, And that's not meant to be an insult to him, although I'm sure it sounds terrible. But I think (laughs) the house style then was draw as much like John Byrne as you can. He doesn't yeah. again. I don't think he's got the skills to totally pull it off. But if you know, but it's it looks different than other Don Perlin stuff that I've seen. Mm-hmm. And I remember Torak. I thought kind of the same thing, although that one was a little a step up from this. And when you look at that uh, the ad for uh, Hardcore Number Eight, mm-hmm. that looks like a burn picture, and it's not. Yeah. So I, I I always got I got the impression that that was the house style. Draw like John Byrne. Yeah, and I think you had um, the the only two artists who I uh, Bernard Chang sounds familiar. I'd have to look and see what I've had of his. But the only artists that I know who were doing a fair amount of work with Valiant and were slightly different than kind of their house style were Bart Sears and then Joe Casada did a number of. I think he launched Ninjak, which was going to be the hot new character, and this is really right before the bottom falls out. Um, for Valiant, they're they're around for a few years beyond this, um, but but it's kind of the beginning of the end, especially because of the way they they flooded the market with a lot of things and um, just the economics of it. I mean, the stories were never terrible, and the books, from what I understand, did ship on time, which is the problem Image had at the beginning. But they didn't have the um, star power to maintain some stuff, and they really did fall victim to their own hype when the market really started to tank which is unfortunate because a lot of these and and i've read some of the more recent valiant the like the the the, the, the uh, if if um, i think pretty sure most people know the valiant is back over the last few years and i've read a couple of things here and there and it's actually really good i've heard that i have I've, uh, i have yet to get around to actually reading any of it but i've heard a lot of positive buzz on it i got on the cheap at the Valiant booth at Con for like I think it was like ten bucks. He was like I said if I wanted to read something, what should what should I start with? And there was a mini series they did called The Valiant, which was kind of a reintroduction of a lot of the quote classic Valiant characters, and it was very very well done, well put together. Um, So I'd recommend that. And you know if you're interested in checking out this almost for the for the nostalgia factor, this is, this is worth a shot. I mean, it's not as, I don't feel like I wasted my money with, granted I got this for free, but if I had found this in a 50 cent bin, it wouldn't be a waste of money in the same way where, um, I could probably pick up an entire run of brigade from image for five bucks and still feel like I wasted $5. So, you know, it's all relative. But on a whole with this particular story, uh, you know, the, like I said, I feel like the artwork is kind of, workmanlike i think there's again i think there's an effort to make it you know the house style uh you know you pointed out the kind of washed out color scheme the lack of you know real emotion in the facial expressions or or at least you know relatable emotions in them uh it's it's not the artwork's not terrible it's not great it's it's kind of okay it's it's fairly easy on the eyes it's not you know 
one of these ones where it, where it's you know difficult to look at. Yeah, there's just nothing special about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Story wise, I mean, you have precious little action in it. It's all set up. Yeah, it's it's all set up, and it is interesting, but I don't know if it compels me to to read the next issue. Uh, offhand, I don't even know what what uh, what what Bloodshot's power set is. That that's one of the bigger issues, one of the bigger problems. Where um, it 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 can be a decent jumping on point if you're interested enough to buy the next issue. And like I said, I have the next issue because it was in that box, so I'll read it. But I have no idea what his story, who he is, other than this seems to be some sort of intelligence thing, spy game, something going on like that. He he comes off as like a like a Van Damme, Seagal, Stallone type of character. Well, just in the was... outfit, I'm thinking he's got to have some superpower. Yeah, yeah, but I don't know. what You're right. I don't know what they are. <laughs> what are those things bleeding off of him on the cover as he's falling? Is that his clothes ripping? Uh, yeah, that's his. That's his shirt. The the blue there. Yeah, well, I mean, on 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 the right side, on his, you know, the, as you look at it, the the shoulder on the right, mm-hmm. it looks like the like the air pressure is pulling the shirt up. But then on the left, it's kind of coming from his waist and then going up, and uh, it, it almost looks like it's a, a suspender or something. Yeah, it looks like it. I think it's just supposed to be part of his his clothing, and it's not. Yeah, it's not done particularly well. Like his shirt ripped um, in between that part where the buttons meet and the uh, and the back there. So. All right, yeah, I'm just, it's yeah. a little difficult to figure out exactly what they're trying to convey with that. Yeah. I mean, overall, I found it to be a mildly enjoyable read. You know, it's mm-hmm. nothing, nothing really special, but but kind of enjoyable and interesting. And if the next issue was in front of me, I'd probably start paging through it. But I don't know if I'd go out of my way to, to get it. Yeah, I think workmanlike is one of the best ways to describe um, quite a bit of it. And, and also, I mean, it... it Valiant clearly was making an effort, making an effort to create a universe. Mm-hmm. So, if you're familiar with who Ninjak is, perhaps that would be something you'd go out of your way to read the next issue because of it. I yeah. think, if if I remember right, I think I have issue one of Ninjak, and I think it was written by and autographed by Jimmy Palmiotti. But I'm not even sure where I got it from. <laughs> Yeah, there's an ad in here um, for Exo Manowar Zero Hour, which is Exo Manowar number zero, and it's got it has art by Joey Q and Jimmy Palmiotti because he would ink Quesada for years after this. I think this was around the time where they got their start together. Yeah, and they they were very very good friends, especially mm-hmm. when they started uh, the uh, the Marvel Knights. Yeah. So. What do you think of it, Scott? Well, my my first impression of it was crushing disappointment because I have a a bunch of issues, um, almost a complete run of Bloodshot uh, in my collection. However, it's I'm not sure it's this guy. So I was looking on Mike's Amazing World, right? Mm -hmm. And I looked up Bloodshot and this series that you're covering was it started in February 93 and ran for 51 issues and it ended in August 96. Yeah. But the series that I have also called Bloodshot started up in July of 97 so about a year later 
and ran for 16 issues. And I've got almost all of those. Now, I could be mistaken, but I'm pretty damn sure that I covered Bloodshot number one, the the July 97 one, on this show like ages ago. Mm. And I really liked that. And it was written by Len Kaminsky, who I think is a really good writer. And the art was by Sal Voluto. And I, I think Sal Voluto is just an awesome guy. And the only reason when I acquired that series as part of a collection that I, I bought somewhere, the only reason I kept the issues is because the art was by Sal Voluto. And I was like, I love this guy. I don't know what the hell this is, but I love this guy's art. So I'll hang out to these. Maybe I'll read it one day. And then uh, I brought that issue to, to back to the bins. I can't remember what I thought of it. I think I liked it, but I just didn't know what the hell was going on. Mm-hmm. So my question is, is it the same guy? Because it turns out, on Mike's Amazing, even though on the cover of, of that later Bloodshot series, it says Acclaim Comics, Mike's got it filed under Valiant. So was Valiant uh, and Acclaim the same thing? Yeah, Acclaim, uh, the which was uh, at the time, and I don't know if Acclaim is still in business, but at the time, Acclaim was a video game company. I got And you. they bought Valiant sometime um, in like 94, 95. Like after after Valiant's fortunes had completely tanked, I think they picked up Valiant on the cheap and then um, let it run for a little while, killed it. And I think they were trying to bring it back in the late 90s and it didn't stick. So. So, yeah, it is it is Valiant um, under the young acclaim umbrella. I don't know who current the current Valiant company is owned by or if they are just an independent publisher on their own. But, yeah, acclaim by Valiant in the in the mid 90s. So this dude on I'm just looking strictly on the cover of Bloodshot number one here, the the latter one, mm-hmm. looks almost like some like zombie punisher version of this dude. Yeah. So I'm wondering, is it the same guy and they just like gave him a makeover? You know what I mean? I but I don't know. I I mean I I have very vague memories of having covered that issue. I remember something about him being in like a cryo tank. And I remember getting a strong Terminator vibe off of it. I remember the art being beautiful, and that's like all I remember. I don't remember if the story was worth a shit or not. I really don't remember. Um, somehow or other, even though I've never had any serious break from comics, you know, I was I was there through the whole '90s thing mm-hmm. and all that. Somehow, this whole thing with these third-party companies, you know, Image, Valiant, all that stuff. I just kind of just skated right through all that and never got involved in any of it. I was aware that it was out there, but that was about it. I, I never got sucked into any of it. So I've acquired some of the issues, you know, in later years as part yeah. of buying collections or what. But I mean, I have zero knowledge of this shit. So, I, I, I came I'm, in in 90 with Batman and then a friend of mine was buying X-Men. Uh-huh. So he got me into the X-Men for about maybe a year or two. He's the one who bought me issue one of Spawn. Uh-huh. And that got that's where I was introduced to Image. Um, right. I was introduced to Valiant mostly through Wizard and then through the Deathmate crossover, um, which is notorious. Right. Uh, but but <clears throat> but yeah, so my third party and I tried to get into the ultra rest. I just don't think I had the money to spend at the time. Um because those were halfway decent books too. I've you, tried you, many you've times. talked about some of those ultraverse books and yeah. and they do seem like they were pretty decent, but we never, you know. Yeah. It, it's Marvel basically bought them and then abandoned them. Yeah, well right. they wanted the color process, I think, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember enjoying Prime, which had Norm Brayfogle art. Yeah, I've heard and that it was, was good. Gorgeous, but I beyond that, I don't remember if any of them stuck. We uh, we covered the first issue of Prime mm-hmm. early on in my run on the show. Yeah, I have. And that. I know we covered an issue of Rune at one point, mm-hmm. which was also pretty interesting. And that was uh, what's his name? Uh, Barry Windsor. Barry Smith. Windsor Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Who was mm-hmm. who at this time was uh, the creative consultant, and senior editor of Valiant Comics, according to the masthead in the bulletin board section which is in the way back of the comic book where it's kind of their bullpen bulletins. Right. Uh, sort of section and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I don't know this, even though this, um, even though I didn't really read a lot of Valiant comics, this did bring back a lot, especially flipping through like what was out at that time and looking at the month and thinking about wizard and, and, and all of the things of being, you know, 15 years old and collecting comics at the time this did take me back to to that era and in in a in a good way in and 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 not not in a oh my god what the hell was i reading back then sort of way because i still was mainly reading dc um i think the only series i ever really committed to from image was spawn for a length of time and the first Wildcats mini and then the occasional issue of something else but for the most part it was batman superman the Titans and whatever else I wanted to pick up with the little bit of money I had from mowing lawns, you know, so, <laughs> so as far as the issue proper though, um, yeah, I, I, I didn't have time to read it. So I had to rely solely on your synopsis. It, I mean, it, it seemed okay for, for what it is. It's just not really my preferred style of comics. It, it seemed more spy thriller than anything else, although there were, you know, clearly there were superpowers involved in that sort of thing. But I couldn't get past the art. I've never really liked Don Perlin's art style. I find it very pedestrian. But it's weird here is that, it, you know, while it is Don Perlin, it doesn't feel like Don Perlin to me with this. I, my best summation of this art in this issue is poor man's Dick Giordano. I think that's what it mm-hmm. really feels like to me. I Now, it's funny because I like Dick Giordano as an inker. I think he's a fantastic inker, but I never liked him when he would pencil stories, like when, when he was the primary artist. I just There was something about his art style that I just found incomplete somehow like it just had a, a, like a slightly like unfinished and slightly bland look to it and that's exactly what I'm seeing here it looks because of the the printing process and especially the color it looks incomplete and it's very very bland it's it's mm-hmm. not, there's no dynamism to any of the uh, action sequences or anything it's just it's extremely pedestrian it's very so, stiff stiff yeah and I'm, I'm just i'm really put off by the art in it i mean the, the story may be fantastic but just judging it strictly by flipping through it and looking at the pictures it just like it looks just like ugh, you know ho hum mm-hmm. so it you know it's kind of hard to get a, a feel for for the whole thing just based on the art and everything so I mean, I can only judge it on on the cover and on the art, and you know, again, just you know, your story synopsis. So, my my grade on it would be a you know, um, 
you know, story wise, a, a middle of the road C because it just doesn't. It's just subject material that honestly just doesn't really appeal to me. On, a, on an art basis, it is a D minus. It is just mm-hmm. above a, a failing grade because it's it's just so bland, you know. Yeah. Even that, you know, in, in what just about any other book that that last picture of him falling to his death after being sucked out of a plane would be like, a, Oh wow, that's awesome. And even that's kind of like, eh, whatever, you know, it's just not, it doesn't do it for me. So, yeah, sorry. This one, yeah, this one didn't grab me. I'm, I'm not even all that curious how he survives. If he survives, you know? <laughs> it just, it's, I'm pretty sure. He, I'm pretty sure. He's, yeah. Well, yeah. I'll let you know. <laughs> it, it just failed to connect. Unfortunately. Uh, your, I can your grades too. Yeah, sure. Um, I the the cover I actually will give around a B because if I saw this on the stands, I'd at least be curious because um, I've <laughs> having read the nom, I've seen my fair share of somebody falling out of a plane or parachuting from a plane covers, and they work when you get the idea of the um, the height or the right. expanse of like you know the at least. Perlin does the background with the river and the roads and everything in a way that you get the scope of the scene. Um, the face is a little bit stiff, uh, but it, it it was it would be eye catching enough that I would at least give it a second look. So a B. The the interior art, you're right though. I I'd probably give that about a C minus. It's it's um you know the only thing I can say is that uh you know he. He does a decent use of actually just kind of taking advantage of having a lot of panels on a page, but for the most part, it's it is very pedestrian or just not. There's not much to it. A lot of the facial expressions, for the most part, are um, pretty stiff, uh, and there's not a, there's n- not a lot of moments where there's good emotion expressed. And when you have an issue that doesn't have a lot of action in it, you need an artist who can express the emotion that you need from the characters. Um, You know, I'll go to George Perez again and, you know, issues of the Teen Titans where there wasn't a ton of action. And yet it was interesting because he knew how to draw faces and he knew how to make the characters emote. This isn't really doing it here. The story though, I'll give a solid B um, because at least it builds tension to a certain extent. It is, it is a spy thriller with superpowers thing. It is a lot of setup but at least leaves you with a halfway decent cliffhanger to say, at least, like I said, I happen to have the other issue. And I was like, well, yeah, I'm kind of curious to see how it ends. And since I have it, I'll grab it. I'll look at it. Um, I don't know if I'd go out of my way to read the next issue, but, uh, but I definitely think it's, you know, it's, it's decently written. It's, it's, and compared to a lot of what was out from other independent companies at the time, it's, of a slightly more solid quality than, than some of the writing there. So I think that adds up to probably about a B B minus overall for the, for the comic. All right. Uh, the reason I think the cover works better than the final splash page. Cause he, he does have the, you know, the, the, the landscape on that final splash page as well. Yeah. I think the reason the cover works better is because He's not near the plane. It makes it seem more, you know, more of a, an open expanse. Yeah, and and therefore more threatening. 
I, I do still don't understand exactly what he was doing with those lines coming off his body. And for me, I, I, it's like I have to take off a half a letter grade just for that because I don't know what yeah. it is. Uh, but yeah, but they, it's, it's, I, think, I think it's a fairly good cover, and I, I think it is intriguing in its own way, and I don't think it's badly rendered. So I'm thinking, you know, B minus on the cover. I think it's, you know, it's solid. It's, it's better than average. It's not great. It's better than average, though. The interior art, I think I <laughs> damn it with faint praise. I think I disliked it the least of the three mm-hmm. of us. Uh, I, I think it's not entirely, you know, problematic to read. Yeah, the facial renderings or the emotions in the faces faces aren't all that well done, uh, and and a lot of times the backgrounds are a little too sparse. He, he just kind of you know, there's a lot of just white background. Yeah, so. But, you know, I called it workmanlike, and I think by definition, a workmanlike book would be a C. Okay. So I, I think that's what this is. This is just, you know, it's average. It's it's it, the, the artwork doesn't make it more difficult to read, but it also doesn't make it more compelling. So it's it's neither good nor bad. It's a C. It's average. Story-wise, I do think it's interesting, but it fails on some level because while, like I said, I would read the next issue, I wouldn't go out of my way to find the next issue. So I think for the story, I'm going to say a B minus. And overall, I'll give the book a C plus. All right. I, I hate I could have gone a full life elf, guys. <laughs> I don't know if you want me to go full life elf. I you never go full. full you never life go full life elf. <laughs> Whatever you brought would have been fine. No, I know, I know, and and I, I had brought two DC books prior to this, so I wanted to to mix it up a little bit. And it was like I said, it was I, hey, I enjoyed talking about it. So yeah, no, it was it was, it was interesting. I, I don't I don't think we had a lack of conversation on it. And if yeah. anybody did, if anybody did shut us down because they were doing a book they weren't interested in, I think they missed out on some good conversation. I'll, I'll have to dig up. There were a couple of issues of the ferret in there. I'll have to dig those. Up. That's one I'm not really familiar with. Yeah, I, I'd never seen it before. I was like, what the hell is this? Which one? The ferret? The ferret. I was like, <laughs> I think I have an issue with that. Yeah, I, was... I may have one that somebody sent me. Yeah. I may have filed yeah. it next to my issue of Badger. Mm. I have a ferret. I, I, there one. might be a Badger in that box. I haven't looked through all the comics. I just kind of, I I, I sorted them and I just filed them away and I I haven't had the chance to read all of them yet. Oh my lord, this looks friggin' horrible. I have a (laughs) ferret number one from 92 where he has the world's biggest mullet. I've got the ferret number one from 1993 where the cover is actually cut to the shape of his head because it's a head shot. So it looks like one of those children's books, you know, where it's where it's a particular shape. <laughs> oh my lord! And then I have the ferret number five, which is still in its poly bag, never been opened, which is probably for my protection. <laughs> and I think I'd rather read the Kool Aid Man comic book than I. <laughs> right. Oh, you know what though? This looks like this ferret number one from '92 looks like it might be just a friggin' riot to read though. That <laughs> might that might have to happen at some maybe, point. Maybe I'll make that happen. We'll make that happen at some point. Okay, I'm pretty confident I do not have any issues of the ferret. It looks like the ferret versus the kingpin, except the kingpin has like one of those. Uh, uh, oh God, <laughs> who is that Russian leader with the birthmark on his head? Workshop. Um, Gorbachev, yeah, he has like a Gorbachev like birthmark, but it's on the side of his face. Oh God! 
yeah, this looks all kinds of screwed up. So, yeah. From the pages of the Protectors. Do I have any issues of Protectors? I have no idea what the hell that is. Let's see. Protectors. That sounds familiar, but I don't think I have any of those. <laughs> I have issues 1, 2, and 14 of the Protectors. It looks... Oh, my God. It looks horrible, too. Wow. Who the hell is this freak on the cover of 14? He's... Oh, he's a mess. It was the 90s. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> this is like, into everything, Tom. <laughs> this is like hey, I lived super it. shit 90s, too. Wow, you, this is horrible. You don't know, man. You weren't there. This could be next episode, because this looks just <laughs> so horrible. It could be a blast. Malibu does it again. Does what? <laughs> do I want him to ever do it again? No. Wow. Something for people to look forward to. Well, whoever this dude is on the cover of Protectors number one, I don't know. I have no idea who he is, but he's a very patriotic looking character. I have an issue of something that has a really beautiful rendered um, Dan Jurgens cover with this particular mm-hmm. character. I just don't know what the hell his name is. It doesn't. It doesn't bother to give you the names of the characters on the cover, so I don't oh, know who not. he is. But Mister Eagle Face or whatever the hell his name is, I have no idea. But yeah, there's. Jurgens worked on him at some point because there's a, there's one with a cover with him that's really nice. But wow, yeah, I you know I'm just as happy to have kind of just lived in in ignorant bliss of this kind of stuff in the '90s. I just, I just kind of trollalod right through the '90s and missed all this shit. So yeah, yeah. I've just been reliving the '70s and '80s ever since then. <laughs> right, uh, <laughs> Mike, Mike and I, it's it's like. Mike Bailey and I have it's almost like we have a therapy thing going every once in a while talking about the 90s. Well, you know, for the most part, I, I have to admit, I subscribe to Mike's philosophy, which is the the 90s gets a bad rap for the most oh, part, because generally speaking, whenever I dig something out from the 90s and read it. I generally, I either enjoy it or I can kind of see what they were going for or, you know, just it's generally not as bad as everybody always says, generally speaking. But there is a reason why the the, the decade has the stigma it does. And it <laughs> yeah. looks like it's shit it's, like this, you know? It's, so, called, yes, the it's also called the, the Homage Studio Swimsuit Special. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. But the, the problem with the 90s is it gets painted with a broad brush that everything right. is the same, and it isn't. No, it's oh, not. Yeah. The, the yeah. thing about the 90s is there were a lot of overhyped books, and there were a lot of gimmick books. And if you eliminate that, it's probably the same as virtually every other decade. The, the right. 90s the 90s, in, in a lot of popular culture, like music in the 90s is very much the same way, where there's a lot of... And maybe it has to do with the the way the economy was. The economy sucked in the beginning of the nineties, but by the end of the nineties, you have this dot com boom and music. At least what you would see on MTV. Let's just kind of frame it in that way. You would have a lot of this this alternative stuff. You know, your Pearl Jam, your Nirvana, your you more. And it was darker in tone. It was more serious. But by the end of the decade, you have boy bands and teen pop again, and and. So it's almost like two distinct halves of a decade. And you see that in comics as well, where there's a lot of stuff from the later part of the 90s that's like from about 96, 97 on to about 2000, 2001, that's really good um, and really fun as opposed to some of the shit that you have from the first part of the decade. And even then, some of that's not even that bad. So. That's the thing. Again, it's the problem is that it gets painted with a broad brush. Oh yeah, and yeah. you can't do that. You could find shit in any decade. 
I mean, that's that's that. If I sent you off looking, you know, find me shit books from each decade, I think it's a pretty easy project. I have an entire long box of New Fifty Two comics. I can tell, show you shit from this decade. Exactly. That's how, you, how you always picked your books for the show, Paul? I usually save the shit ones for when you're on. I know you do, <laughs> bastard. <laughs> oh. All right. You want to take it out there? It works. Probably good. <laughs> that <idea>. works. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy, all rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to two true freaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the two true site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.